0: Well, good morning again, folks. If you'd like to take out your Bibles, uh, if you have them with you. And we're turning this morning to the book of Revelation as we continue on in our series on the uh, letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And this morning we uh, are at the end of uh, chapter 2 and we're concentrating on the letter of Jesus to his church in Thyatira. So it commences at Revelation chapter 2, verses 18, and goes through to the end of the, uh, the chapter. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. What the Spirit says to the churches, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father now, as uh, we come to open your word together, Lord, as we hear your word proclaimed, Lord, let me please echo those words that uh, Chris reminded of again, reminded us of this morning that we had a that you might sanctify us this morning in your truth. Your word is indeed truth. May we receive it as such this morning. In the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You know, as I was reflecting uh, this, this uh, week and the sermon pre- preparations, particularly around this particular passage in Revelation 2, I couldn't help but see some remarkable comparisons between the church in Thyatira and, and the Corinthian church. And lots, of, uh, lots of things. And as you read through it, and if you read through the letters to the Corinthians, you'll see that there is a lot, that uh, there's a lot of similarities. But as I was reading through it, one verse in, in 1 Corinthians 15 came to mind, and it's this. Paul writes, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. 1 Corinthians 15.33. Let me read that again. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. This is the big problem we see here in this church in Thyatira. Thyatira. Of course, it wasn't all bad in this church. As uh, the, uh, the writer of, uh, of Revelation, John, writes uh, in this particular letter that uh, Jesus has given him to the church. In addressing his church, Jesus says that there's some really good things that the church needs to be commended for. We see that in, the, uh, in verse 19, where he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your uh, latter works exceed the first. Here again, like in the church in Ephesus, we see a church that appears on the surface to be doing some really excellent and good things, things which Jesus himself commends them for, that the Lord of his church says, guys, this, you're doing a marvellous and wonderful job in these areas. You are a loving church. You very much hold to, you know, you're, you're holding up the, uh, the faith and you are, you're, you're serving others well, you're serving one another well and you, you're patiently enduring in that amidst all of the challenges that, uh, that the church is facing in that particular time. Jesus commends it that not only were they doing these things, but they were also increasing in these things as well. That, you know, from the, from the time that the church began to, to now, Jesus is saying there's been a, a, a marked progression, a marked improvement in the way in which they're conducting themselves in these areas. We can see that this church was, was actively engaged in all kinds of faithful and loving Christian ministry. And we're seeking to become, you know, more, you know, better at that in their lives, in their service for Christ. But the thing is, there were, you know, things were very much far from well in this church, despite all the good things that were going on. And this is the, the challenge that we, uh, that we find today, that, you know, in churches, in, in Jesus' church today, people who are loving, faithful, serving, patiently, enduring, all those sorts of things, that there can still be things which Christ wants to confront us with and are things which he sees as a danger to his church. And we see this in Thyatira, where we, we read in verses 20 to 21... These words of Jesus. He said, despite all the good things, he said, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus points out that the church, this particular church, even in the midst of their their love and their faith and their service and their patient endurance was 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 holding to some teaching that was indeed uh, heretical and dangerous to the church. And it was all of, all under the influence of this woman that he uh, refers to here as Jezebel. Now, Jezebel wasn't this lady's uh, real name, by the way. This is just kind of like a bit of a character reference. Sometimes we'll refer to uh, to people, you know, that uh, they've got the patience of Job, for instance. You know, well, this, this one, uh, this particular woman was clarified or was uh, classified by Jesus as a character like Jezebel from the Old Testament. Some of you might be familiar with Jezebel. Uh, we don't, don't often hear her name mentioned much today, but, uh, but Jezebel was probably the most evil queen in all of the Old Testament. We read about her in 1 and 2 Kings. In fact, in Second Kings chapter 9 and verse 34, it refers to her as that cursed woman. Jezebel was married to King Ahab, who ruled in the northern kingdom of Israel. And, uh, and Ahab actually entered into a military, li- a military alliance with, uh, with one of his neighbors, King Ethbaal. And Jezebel was his daughter. And in order to secure that kind of alliance, Ahab married Jezebel and uh, welcomed her into, uh, into the kingdom, into the palace. And Jezebel was a worshipper of Baal. And so as, as well as bringing up you know, all her entourage of, uh, of royalty and that sort of thing with her, she brought with her all these false prophets. And so she started to lead the nation of Israel into idolatry and sexual immorality in these uh, religious practices surrounding this worship of Baal. Not only that, she, uh, she was also an evil woman in that she had uh, the, the, um, the innocent man Naboth uh, killed so that her husband could secure his vineyard. It was uh, you know, near next door to the, uh, to the palace grounds and uh, Ahab saw the, uh, the vineyard and, and saw, hey, this is a really good uh, piece of land and I'd love to have that, but I don't know how I can go about getting it because Naboth owns it. And Jezebel said, let me take care of that for you and she had Naboth basically falsely accused and then killed. Not only did she have Naboth killed, but she also sought to kill the prophets of God as well, including in that day the prophet Elijah. God, though, in the midst of all this wickedness, eventually pronounced judgment on her, and she fell out of a building, was trampled by horses, and then eaten by dogs. What a wonderful end. Mm. (laughs) Hmm. She was an incredibly evil woman who led God's people down a path of evil themselves. And so like her Old Testament namesake, this woman in the church in Thyatira had a certain level of power and influence that she used to corrupt the people of God. She was indeed teaching and seducing God's people, his servants, to practice false religious practices, including the sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols that we see here in this passage that Jesus identifies. But how was this happening? I'm glad you asked. Thyatira was a city known for its numerous guilds. Now, a guild was basically kind of like a trade union or a cooperative, if you, if you like, and and people of similar kind of trades all kind of came together and they sort of supported one another and they formed these, these kind of alliances so that they sort of, you know kept a, a bit of a stranglehold on that particular trade in that town in Thyatira. And the, the town, there was many, many guilds. In fact, Thyatira was a, a town well known for its bronze work. It was well known for its, uh, for its shoemaking. It was also well known for its uh, its purple cloth, uh, this this p- uh, particular dyed purple cloth, which was very rare in uh, in those days. And in fact, if you uh, go to Acts 16, you'll read that Jesus actually encountered a woman from Thyatira in, uh, in Philippi who was named Lydia and actually led her to the Lord, and she was baptised there. Lydia was from Thyatira, and she herself, we're told in Acts 16, was was a dealer in purple cloth. Now, the thing is, you needed to belong to one of these guilds if you wanted to work and earn a living in this town of Thyatira. The problem was that each of these guilds had their own patron God, and the members were required to worship that God and participate in all the kinds of rituals and practices that were involved that involved sexual immorality and idolatry along with those guilds. Now, if people didn't go along with these things, then not only did they risk the ire of the guild members, but more than likely they would be kicked out of the guild and unable to find employment in that place. And this posed a huge dilemma for the Christians because the, uh, the, uh, the situation confronting them was this, they either conformed to the ways of the guilds and to the cultural norms of their community or they lost their jobs. And of course, in losing their jobs meant, meant for them and their families financial disaster. It meant that they would lose not only their livelihoods, not only um, means of, of being able to provide for their families, put food on the table, but it means they would probably lose their homes, they would lose all kinds of social standing within their community, they would be ostracised, cast out and find themselves probably begging on the streets. And so the temptation, therefore, for the Christians was indeed to compromise their faith and beliefs and to engage in these kind of practices in order to maintain their economic security and acceptance within their community. And it would appear that this woman Jezebel was saying to these believers, these, she was saying that they could participate in such behaviors and practices and yet still hold to their faith. In other words, she sought to compromise in matters of holiness in order to make it easier to be a Christian in a hostile environment. Sound familiar? Yeah, It's our world, isn't it? It's our world today. How many pressures are being placed on us as followers of Jesus today to conform to the patterns of this world in order to fit in and to be accepted? It's interesting, in verse 24, Jesus refers to the, uh, the teachings of the deep things of Satan. Now, although this is not particularly explained here in this passage, we do know that at this particular time, uh, there, was a, there was a teaching that was prevalent within the first century that devalued the material world. In other words, the physical was far less, Im- uh, was far less important than the spiritual. And the teaching said that you know, whatever you did with your physical body really didn't matter that much. This was considered to be deep spiritual teaching, and only the so-called enlightened ones could understand it. Not only does bad company corrupt good character, but bad doctrine also leads to bad lives. And we need to be very careful as as Christians today who we are listening to and, and what teaching we are allowing to influence us in our thinking and in and shaping us in our lives. It's interesting today, isn't it, that you know, probably today more than than, than ever in the, the history of, 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 of humanity have we have do we have so much access to religious preachers and teaching. The internet and social media have given a platform to whoever wants to promote their ideologies and doctrines and get it all out there. The Bible is coming under more and more attack and is being twisted by many to say things that are false. And, you know, falsehood can actually look remarkably good, like good. You know, it's 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 really easy to sort of pick um, something which is a blatant, um, you know, sort of a, a copy of something. Like, for instance, um, and when we were um, you know, sort of travelling around a bit earlier last year, you know, some of the uh, shops you'd sort of go to, they they you know, they'd have these knockoffs of really expensive kind of items. You know, the cheap shops. You know, you would get a, a Louis Vuitton a copy of a Louis Vuitton bag or something for five bucks. You know, those sorts of things. You know, you can tell those kind of fakes from a mile away. You really can. But when it comes to things like, you know, particularly people today with with, uh, looking at perhaps counterfeit money, that sort of thing, they are incredibly, incredibly good at being able to copy the real thing to the point where it's really, really hard to tell the difference, even though it's a counterfeit. And it's just, it can be the same today for us. And, and the things that we are bombarded with in our lives, the falsehoods, we, they can, on the surface, they can seem so much like truth and so good. But the thing is, we ourselves, as followers of God, have the truth. Here in this word, and we need to be measuring everything we hear and see and read and, and, and that by what the word of God says to us. It's interesting, you know, even when the devil came to tempt Jesus there in the wilderness in Matthew 4, the devil actually used scripture to be able to, to, to try and tempt Jesus. But of course, Jesus was able to see that the scriptures that the devil was using were using them right out of context. And Jesus corrected him for that, rebuked him in that. Folks, it's one, it's, it's one of the reasons why Christian community is so vital to us as followers of Christ today to be a part of. But we need, within Christian community, hopefully we can, we can protect one another and, 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 and collectively warn one another against that which is false. Now, When we sort of start isolating ourselves, it's that, that's when we can become real targets for the enemy. We can become isolated and, and, and alone, and it's an easier for him to lead us into falsehood. But within a Christian community, hopefully within a, a community that, that, that honours and, and, and really holds up the truth of the word of God, that is in that that we, have, can we form some kind of, of, of protection around the community of God in that regard. Talking about falsehood, you know, we've we've only got to look, you know, in recent times at our own world in terms of how we've seen the views of many Christians who have who have you know been uh, blinded by falsehood particularly around, you know, this whole aspect of sexual immorality. By the way, um, you know, there are probably about a list of seven or eight, or the seven or eight lists in the New Testament about the various vices that Christians are to be aware of. And with each, each and every one of those, sexual immorality is, is the one that is, that is mentioned the most. And generally it's towards the beginning of those lists or very much up front in those lists. This is the danger that we face. You know, in uh, just in recent times, we've seen you know the uh, the falsehood that has been promoted around the uh, the area of same sex marriage and gender related issues within our society. But not only that, we see it also in the views today of many Christians around the whole uh, aspect of relationships and the fact that it's okay to to cohabit or to have sexual relations either before marriage or even with you know with outside of marriage. Today, there's a tendency to be ruled more by what our rational minds believe is okay and what feels good and right to us in our hearts rather than what God's word says. For many Christians today, they're more concerned about what others think of them rather than what God thinks of them. It's interesting that Paul, writing to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 4, says this in warning. He says for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears but, sorry but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths that scripture is coming true more and more in our world today folks and even in churches, we're getting, we're getting people who profess to love Jesus Christ, who instead, instead of listening to the word of God, are listening to their own hearts, their own ideas, and, and trying to gather around them people who will then affirm them in those falsehoods. The challenge for us as followers of Jesus is to know where to draw the line when the world seeks to pressure us into conforming to its ways. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Rome, has this to say, a very familiar of very familiar verses, I'm sure, to many of us, where he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but instead be transformed by the renewal of your minds as we meditate on the Word of God, the Scriptures. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, not conforming to what the mould that the world wants to push us into, but instead being conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ as we rely on the Spirit of God, as we ourselves cling to the truth of the Word of God. As disciples of Jesus, we are called to be different to the world, to not adopt its values and its philosophies. And yes, we are called to be in the world, not withdrawing into holy huddles and to be be engaging with people and with the culture, but in a way that honours God and reflects his holiness. And that's the rider in all of this, isn't it? But yes, we need to be engaging with our world and we need to be salt and light in our community, but we can only be salt and light as we indeed reflect the holiness and the truth of our Saviour Jesus. Of course, the other danger that we need to be mindful of and which can be very, very uh, common in particularly conservative churches like ours is that there is a danger that we, be- we can become incredibly judgmental and pharisaical that we can start to look down our noses at those around about us and think that we're so much better than them, that we've got our act together and we've got it right. May that never be the case in in this church or in any of Jesus' churches, that we, we become like the Pharisees. The Bible tells us that we are indeed to be holy as our Heavenly Father is holy. Interesting, we sang a song earlier about, you know, my chains are gone, I've been set free. And it's true, we have been set free in Jesus Christ. We have been set free to be those, to be like Jesus. We've been set free to be the people who he has called us to be, who he has saved us to be. People who are indeed holy before our God and walk in his ways. You know, Jesus has saved us, not, not just saved us from our sins, but He saved us to an entire new life, a life of, of holiness and goodness and righteousness and freedom, freedom from sin and, and, and guilt and shame and all that sort of stuff. And what Jesus is saying here in this, with, with things like sexual immorality and idolatry and these sorts of behaviours, Jesus says that's only taking you back into those lives where you will be bound by chains. That's why Jesus is saying so. He's he's trying to uh, you know to to, uh, to to shake this church up and saying can't can't you see that by going down this path you are going back into the, your old ways. You're going back into that stuff that binds you, that 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 chains you up, that that, des- that slowly but surely destroys your life and the and your witness for me as as the Lord and Savior of this world. We are to be holy as our Heavenly Father is holy, recognizing that that holiness is something which we have received in Jesus Christ, that he is the only one who can give it to us, and that we live that way in, freedom, in the freedom he's given us, but also in recognition that we want to point others to him and to show others that life of freedom that they can find in Christ as well. And this will always come at a cost, and sometimes an incredibly substantial one. As Kevin DeYoung says this, he says, lighting a candle in the darkness is always going to be conspicuous. Lighting a candle in the darkness is always going to be some conspicuous. If we are going to actually make take a stand for Jesus Christ in this world, if we are indeed going to be that salt and light he calls us to be, we are going to stand out. You cannot help that. And it is going to bring persecution and condemnation and ridicule and opposition and all kinds of things to us. It may lead us to losing our jobs. It may lead us to losing our friends. It may even lead us to being ostracized from our own families. And for some, it may even mean them losing their very lives. But we need to heed the words of Joshua to the people of Israel in uh, Joshua 24 when he says to them as they, you know, they come into the promised land, and Joshua says to them, "'Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve.'" Whether you serve, you know, the gods of your fathers or the, God be, the gods beyond the rivers and that sort of thing, choose for yourself. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? That's the line that we all have got to draw in the sand as followers of Jesus today, folks. Choose for ourselves this day whom we will serve. And by the grace of God, we will all be able to say, but as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord, the King of kings, our Saviour. In the church at Thyatira, Jezebel is using, or this woman referred to, Jesus refers to as Jezebel, uses her spiritual influence and position in the church to teach the people that it is okay to compromise, that it's okay to participate in all of these pagan practices of the guilds. And in doing so, she leads numerous believers astray and she corrupts the church and its witness. And the church allows her to do this. This is what Jesus condemns, not only Jezebel, but he condemns the church and says, You tolerate, you tolerate this woman and her teaching. No one speaks up, and Jesus condemns them for that fact because they were giving free reign to a false teacher. It's interesting, it's been said that the only thing needed for evil to triumph is for good men to do or to say nothing. We need to confront that which is evil, we need to confront that which is false. You know, it's interesting here, it appears that believers in this church were happy to allow this, this false teacher to promote her immoral and idolatrous ways you know, to lead others into sin, but Jesus himself was not going to allow it to continue. He sees all, and he's going to make an example of Thyatira, in fact, to all the churches. We see that in verse 23. But the one, see, the one identified in verse 18 as having eyes of fire, picturing his holy and piercing gaze, the holy and piercing gaze of Jesus in his church. Speaks of his, his feet of burnished bronze reflecting his purity as he walks among the lampstands, the churches of his days, he walks amongst the churches today. The one with 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 eyes of blazing fire, with feet of burnished bronze, is about to bring his righteous judgment. And he says that he's already given Jezebel a chance to repent, but that she refuses. And because of her refusal, Jesus says that he's going to judge her and all who follow in her ways. He says in verse 23 where he says, and I, sorry, in verse 22, he says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead." We must never think that because Jesus has died on the cross for our sins and forgiven us for our sins, that he will not judge sin in us or in his church. Yes, we are under grace, but this passage clearly shows that Jesus will not tolerate willful and flagrant sin in his church, particularly the sins of idolatry and sexual immorality. And these sins are so serious that Jesus warrants them to be worthy of death. Reminds me of, of Jesus' words in Matthew 18:6, where he says, "But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea." In the case of this woman, Jesus is going to throw her on her sickbed, in other words, her deathbed, and her children, her followers themselves, will die. It will be a witness to all that Jesus himself searches the hearts and minds of those who claim to be his followers and will hold them accountable for their sinful ways. Reflecting back on on Corinthians again, in 1 Corinthians 11, again it points to the judgment of Christ in his church where he indeed brought sickness and death on people who had been actually eating the Lord's Supper in the wrong way, who had been practicing all kinds of immorality and, and, and idolatry even around the receiving and the taking and the participating in the Lord's Supper. And folks, this, I don't know about you, but I find this pretty frightening stuff. And it should cause us all not to take lightly the holiness and the righteousness of our God because Jesus is still today refining and purifying and warning and rebuking and judging his church and seeking to make his children holy, to bring them to that place of repentance even when they sin. You know, here this woman is is and and her she's having this incredible influence at the church. But isn't it interesting that Jesus says, you know, that I have given her time to repent, to turn away from what she's doing, to turn away from wickedness. And Jesus gives us all those opportunities. He gives us all that opportunity to repent, to turn away from our sin. And that in itself is a wonderful work of the grace and the, and, and, the, and the compassion and the mercy of our God that he indeed gives us those opportunities to repent and call on him. God is always ready to forgive and cleanse and to give us a fresh start. But the thing is, folks, that you know, as we read through this passage, we see that to Jesus, truth and holiness actually matter. They matter to him and they should matter to us as his followers. That's why he tells those, those faithful ones in Thyatira who have remained faithful to, to him to hold fast, to stay true to him and his ways. It says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, in verse 24, who do not hold this teaching and who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. That is the word of Christ to us today, to hold fast to him, to him, to his truth, to his ways, to his word. And he promises that as we do, that he will indeed give those who stay true to him, he will give authority, they will rule over the nations. But more significantly, even on top of that, Jesus promises to give them himself. Read in, uh, at the, uh, in verse 28, he says, And I will give him, that person who holds, who holds fast to me in my teachings, I will give him the morning star. We find out who that morning star is in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, where Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus says he will indeed give us himself. You know, in our world today, folks, as I said, we, we encounter so much opposition to Christ. We, we encounter so much uh, hatred and opposition and, and persecution in, you know, in the Christian church as followers of Jesus. We, will be, you know, we may be cultural outcasts. We may be looked, bit, looked down upon by many in our society, in our world. We might be seen as outdated, as foolish, as unenlightened, and, and, and even as ignorant and behind the times. That will be the way that our world will continue to view us and it will only get worse. There's your piece of encouragement. to No, 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 (laughs) no. It's true. It is only going to get worse. And Jesus is going to allow these things to happen so it sifts his church as well. That Jesus actually, even through this opposition and this hardship, he's going to sift his church to find out the wheat from the chaff. And I pray that we will all end up being that wheat, for, that, that, wheat that Jesus you know, sifts all the chaff away from, that we will be the ones who stand strong and firm for him despite all of the opposition, all of the hard, all of the hard challenges that come with being a follower of him today. But the thing, the hope that we have to look forward to is that even though the world may consider us in this way, even though we might not inherit anything in this world, we will indeed inherit Jesus. One day we will be with him and he will be ours the one that is the most precious of all precious things. The one who, is, who has within his hands all of the riches and all of the glory and all of, all of the things that we can't even begin to imagine and all their, their wonder and their marvelousness and their beauty and their, their glory. All those things, we will inherit that in Jesus Christ. And yes, yeah, something to get excited about. Amen. The riches of this world have got nothing on Christ and his kingdom. Nothing whatsoever. And we need to keep our eyes focused on that, folks. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, fixed on the, the, uh, the upward and heavenly call that we've received in him and the glory which will be one day be ours with him. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of Christ says to the churches. Amen and amen.